Palace High above 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Comedy on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app to your smartphone so you can stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. We can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today and as I continue to traverse the musical landscape of our cultural heritage and our musical history, it is always invigorating to connect with cats uh, who were born uh, essentially part of my generation, maybe a little bit older than me, but they are clearly uh, bringing an attitude and a vibe and an urgency to the bandstand that a lot of younger generations need to uh, focus on because Let's face it, I mean, the vibe, just like the amp is half the guitar sound, or the sound of your guitar, the vibe is equally half the, uh, you know, the music could be great, but if it's a formula trip and it's completely sterile, you're going to wind up staring at the wall, and this guy uh, tends to uh, blend, uh, you know, a little bit of, uh, a little bit of, of wry humor, uh, poetry, and a melodic improvisation into his performances, and uh, he's played with a lot of luminary cats, and um, you know, currently residing in Santa Fe, New Mexico. What a high honor. John Graboff, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Well, that was some introduction. Are you sure you're, you sure you're reading my bio? Uh, that was just off the top of my, that was off the top of my head. But uh, by the way, I just want to be clear. Is it, is it, is it Graboff? Yes, that's correct. Okay, good. I, I want you to talk about that, John, because, or what you were influenced by growing up as a kid, because the music that I have to that I listen to, um, I mean, is all it spans all over the place. But but the 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 essential quality is that uh, I don't mean this in like you know a dire sense, but there's a sense of urgency to the music. I don't care if it's you know uh, listening to uh, Keith Hartley or Blue Mitchell or The Grateful Dead or you and Casal. Uh, there's a burning quality to the music. There's a sense of urgency. And, and what I see a lot now today is people really um, pretty obsessed with, you know, um, kind of a formula trip, uh, not wanting to make mistakes, not really realizing there are no mistakes. And I kind of wanted to know who were the guys that were really, that you got off on when you were just coming up that were taking chances, were unafraid, and would go there. Well, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, that's it's kind of an interesting thing. It's something I've actually thought about quite a bit, and I've had conversations with various musicians about pretty much what you're talking about. And I, it kind of occurred to me that even if, you, if, you, if, you, even if you go down in a ball of flames, you're somewhat forgiven because you were actually going for something. Exactly. And that's a, pal that's a palpable thing when people watch that and the thing that's great about that whole audience participation on this kind of a sublim subliminal level and the artist's intent is 
that everybody feels emotionally invested in it to, to a certain degree. If people are paying attention, they see, they see that you're really kind of going for something. If you look like you have to paint yourself into a corner or go down in a ball of flames, everybody's sort of at the end of their seats. And when you pull it out the last minute, everybody feels elated. And that's the beautiful, <laughs> that's the beautiful thing about live performances in particular. Um, if you do it right, as far as I'm concerned, um, you involve the audience in an emotional level that's mutually gratifying. Who were? If that makes any sense. If that no, makes I mean you, that's. I mean it's going down in a, in a ball of flames and then pulling it out at the last minute. I I don't even. I think sometimes. I mean I'm from I'm a Gen Xer, but I, I look at younger cats and I'm like. I think that that sometimes they're petrified because they think the audience is even going to know if they make a mistake. I mean, sometimes the audience the audience won't even know if you if, unless you unless it's very obvious. So it, it, to me, it speaks to, um, you know, I mean, I the, the, obviously I fall back on this band because I listen to you know I'm, I'm inundating my daughters with early '80s Grateful Dead, and there's this you know sort of ur- urgent, urgent, urgent. I mean, clearly there were some some drugs involved, but it was like. I mean, they were really going for it every time. Sometimes it worked, and when it did work, it was great. And their fans allowed them. Um, they went on a trip with them, and they allowed them to fail once in a while. And I mean, how, is there is there a way for you to talk to talk about? I guess your own experientially on your own, like on your own trip, how you learn to become emboldened and overcome that adversity when you start to feel the fire and the bur- and the flames, but then you at the last minute, you know, you pull it out. Well, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be perfectly honest. I went to, you know, early on, I went to exactly what you were describing. That's that fear of failure thing, the fear of making a mistake, <clears throat> the, the fear of showing that you don't know everything about what you're trying to do. And, you know, I kind of, I kind of grew out of that to certain, I'm not exactly sure what the turning point was. Um, but I, I, I realized at one point what allowed a lot of people a certain amount of freedom was I, and I kind of put it in a really weird, in a weird context. I think of it as pre-punk post-punk where there's, there's a, there's an, an attitude and an intent that was, uh, that was very much in evidence, you know, during the initial stages of punk rock where it didn't matter that you didn't know how to play. It was a matter of what you were trying to do and what you were trying to communicate. I dig. And, and um, you know, there were earlier exceptions. You mentioned the Grateful Dead, for example, who were not afraid to suck. And they often sucked. <laughs> and the thing that was amazing about it was that they were not afraid to suck. And then they would record and, and, and encourage people to record everything they did, good, bad, and ugly. And as far as I was concerned, that was like one of the most, one of the punkest things I've ever ever thought about. When you really think about it, these guys just didn't care. I said, okay, sometimes, we're, and we're often going to really suck, but at least we're trying to do something. And you can't you can't win every time. More often than not, you you're, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to fail. But when you do hit those high mark, high points, then the high points are really high. You know, and of course, you know the low points can be pretty low too. If you, you know, I'd, I wouldn't want to be an audience member sitting through 45 minutes of tuning guitars, 
<laughs> wanking. I mean, I, I mean, uh, yeah, for me, it's all like a fantasy. I mean, I find myself even in the midst of this period that gets overlooked and the, the live dead context. I mean, there's always, um, I mean, what everyone has their own subjective opinion about what sucks. But I mean, I just, to me, like, even if they went there, I mean, the tension and release was there. That it was, and again, you're talking about that's about as punkish as it gets because most of those guys really weren't. They learned how to play on the bandstand. They weren't professional. They didn't know how to play, read music or anything like that. I'm just curious right. about the 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 when you talk about early punk. I remember listening to uh, uh, an interview back when they when when everything was not interconnected. I mean, uh, Jerry Garcia band went on. Um, went on a, uh, uh, a winter tour to promote their, their album Cats Down Under the Stars, and, and, and they were at a local radio station in, in Binghamton, New York, and Khan and Garcia were, but, like, they, 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 the guy asked them what music they liked today, and they were both talking about punk music because they were, there was this passion. The guys were really passionate about it, and they were really willing to right. go there. That was early punk. Do you think that the punk mm-hmm. did punk change over time? Did it? Ch- and, and, well, and sure, sure it did. Well, you have to, you know, I mean, um, uh, yeah, sure it did. It became it became uh, like like all artistic movements. It starts out with a with an initial inspiration, and then it just ends up getting uh, formalized and commercialized to appeal to a broader audience, and it gets watered down, and. Uh, you know, I mean, they could, you know, uh, there was there was a, a particular band that was inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame like two years ago, and I was like scratching my head, going, "What? I mean, this is this was punk music for the Walmart crowd." <laughs> um, yeah, right. I dig. I dig. You know, I mean, so as I said, you know, it's 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 the early stuff, no matter what the genre is. It's the early stuff that's always the most vibrant and the most cutting edge. We we over time we. We, we, we fail to recognize its moment in time and why it was so sea-changing, uh, um, you know? Because after a while, we just become so used to it becomes part of the mainstream dialogue. You, sometimes you have, to rem- you have to go back and remember what was going on at that time that this was a reaction to, and then you, to- then you kind of understand... Uh, if you listen to an old, like a real oldie station, and you listen to stuff, re- you know that was really big on the radio in 1961, and then listen to, I saw her standing there by the Beatles, and you understand its time, its moment in time, right. and what the, what that was a reaction to, and why it was so sea changing, and you can point to those moments in almost every important uh, artistic, whether it be fine art or music or or dance or whatever, where those there are those pivotal moments, and over time we just become used to it, and we don't understand why it was so important at that moment. But it's really sometimes it's important to kind of go back and put it in context, and then understand why it was so important. Um, one of my one of my favorite, uh, you know, one of my my idol musicians who I haven't become friends with. I was talking to him, and I I remember saying, "What was about? What would it? What was it about your playing? At the moment, you your your recording career really took off. That was so uh, changed, so kind of so much changed the sound of that instrument. And his reaction was really interesting. He said, 
wow, nobody had ever asked me that question before. <laughs> really? And I thought, well, you know, it's, it's because most people don't don't take the time to kind of understand what was going on at that moment to make that person's playing or whatever or painting or whatever so important and so revolutionary. Um, so it was kind of trying to weave back to what you were saying, what you were talking about before. And when I talked about this kind of pre-punk, post-punk attitude, I'll tell you something really funny. I used to play every Monday night in this little tiny club in New York City, and it was a total cover thing, just a local scene, and we would do everything from Merle Haggard to searcher stuff, you know, British invasion, country mm, stuff, whatever, mm. came, whatever came to mind. And when I first started doing it, this guy that I, I had met came up to me one time and he goes, you know, it's really amazing that you, you play like you've never heard punk music. And at that moment, I thought that was a compliment. And then years later, I realized that was a total diss. <laughs> I mean, what he was telling what he was what he was saying was you're too careful, you're too uh, cerebral cerebral about what you're playing, and what you really need to do is just put your head down and and step on the gas and go and hang it out over the edge, and it's way more interesting, way more exciting. <laughs> but it took it, it took me it took me you know it took me a, a little while to understand what he was actually saying to me, and how I had totally misinterpreted it at the misinterpreted it at the time and then came to understand what he was really saying later on it's funny because i would have totally taken that as a well i mean when i interviewed david garibaldi the drummer from tower of power he would just if someone came up to him after a show and said boy you sounded just like so and so uh he'd be he's like i would well i'd want to slit my wrists i mean all those guys wanted to have their own now that was individual sound as opposed to a genre of music but did you did you even did you feel like you were really singing your truth at that time, or do, do you, looking back, do you feel like you were playing? Do you th- do you feel like you were playing it safe? Um, well, you know, when you when you kind of crawl up your own butt uh, to a certain extent, you lose perspective. <laughs> and I think at that time, I thought I was being. Uh, um, I guess I thought I was being really soulful about it. And then I realized later on that, no, actually what I was really doing was I was just trying to, trying to be as tasteful and appropriate as possible at all moments. And, you know, I've, I've, come, to, I've come to realize later on that can be really boring to listen to when everything is just, just right. It's, I mean, I wind up, no, it's either that or there's nothing worse than like, that or you know going to see some person put on like some sort of chops expedition but there's no good feel and you just wind up falling asleep or staring at the wall but people well yeah i mean I, i've always had this i've always had this saying uh that there's nothing more boring than a well-rehearsed band <laughs> and i really believe that yeah, to be i true. dig I mean, it's like when when you're just regurgitating uh stuff you've gone over a million times it feels that way it sounds that way and the real magic is, and this is what jazz guys have always said about, you know, you know, know your instrument so well that you can forget about all that stuff when you're actually playing, but you have the technique and the knowledge to pull off an idea that comes to you at that moment. And that's really, that's sort of where, where it's sort of at, let's face it. It's like, and, you know, the simple fact about chops is that everybody, there's always going to be somebody around the corner who's just going to blow your doors off from a chops point of view. But what's really more important is what was the context of what you're doing, 
and the content. And if you have the if you have the knowledge to pull off any idea that comes to your head, great. But sometimes, and more often than not, I have found that playing playing just sort of playing along some song you've never heard before. I find this in the stu- in recording a lot. Um, if you just play along with some some song you don't know very well, you'll undoubtedly play something that you would never have played if you knew the song better. And those are quite often the really good ideas because you're in complete reactive mode as opposed to memory mode, and you're using a totally different part of your brain. I dig. No, I mean that's when Miles when when I interviewed McLaughlin, he said Miles went up to him at Bitches Brew and said, "Play the guitar like you don't know how to play the guitar." And it worked mm-hmm. absolutely perfectly. It took him out of his original mindset, and he was in a completely reactive mode, and he crushed it. I guess my question is, in the post-punk, in the post-punk, I just want to put a, a button on this. Like, do, mm-hmm. uh, what what came of it? it uh, you you were articulating um, very nicely about the sort of raw enthusiasm, authenticity, and energy of of the of punk music. But what came of thing? What came of it after punk music? And I just want to preface it by saying, um, I mean, David Spinoza would say, told me, he's like, you know, records were cut back in the day because they were worthy of being cut. Uh, mm-hmm. Wexler, uh, you know, Joel Dorn, Arif Mardin, those guys. I mean, this stuff was like, Aretha Franklin cut records because they were worthy of being cut. And now it's like, well, if you are hot and you have a certain Twitter follower, Twitter, Twitter following, you know, you could have a career in music, but you, you couldn't even perform live because you don't even know how to play. So there's a lack of authenticity there. So is, is that? Well, the, is yeah, that... yeah. I mean, but here's the deal. Yeah. No matter what, no matter what the era is. No matter who's doing what, let's sure, back in the day when record labels ruled, there was a vetting process that only a few people got through who were worthy of making records. However, and now, of course, every Tom, Dick, and Harry, and Harriet has their own recording you know, rig at home with the garage band, and they're just, you know, we're just being flooded with material. But regardless of the era, my, to my ears, it's always been the same. Ninety percent of what's out there is absolute crap. Ten <laughs> percent is worth listening to, right. and only really two percent or one percent is really great. Wow, where did you come up with those numbers from? I mean, that's 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 pretty that's quantifiable. I mean, because I I consider music unquantifiable. It's quantified to the, to to the T. Well, yeah, but you think about it, you know. Um, well, of course, you know as you. I've heard, I've heard something go, yeah, I've heard that before. Right. However, you have to remember that there's a new generation that hasn't heard it all before, and they're reacting to it with fresh ears. So that's always something that's, that's worth um, considering when you're, when, you, when you're hearing stuff out there, you know. Um, that's a little bit off the track. I'm sorry. but uh, No, this is a stream yeah, of con. There's no right or wrong answers. I want to be very clear about that. I, you know, no, I know. Well, that's, that's, that kind of gets us right back to where we, what we were talking about. What you take away from the punk era was that even if you mis- make a mistake or you really screw up, nobody's going to die by listening to it. And that takes a lot of the fear out of it. Nobody's going to get hurt. Nobody's going to die. If you make a mistake, okay, I made a mistake. <laughs> you know, I, I, I caused a giant train wreck, and the whole thing came to a screeching halt. Well, you know what? Shit happens. 
and you know nobody nobody died. Musicians die for other reasons, but not because they made a mistake on stage. Talking to John Grayboff here on the Jake Feinberg show, and uh, I wanted, you know, I, I, my first book. Um, maybe maybe I'll maybe you'll pick up a copy on Amazon. It's about going to drop at the end of this month, but the the second chapter, the second volume, is going to be called "The Calling." And that has to do with what are your intentions for getting into music? And there, um, you know, again, going back to someone like Garibaldi, I mean, he, that's all he wanted to do. He didn't say his art would necessarily pay for his livelihood. Uh, there were other cats that say it's like, you know, the equivalent of, of uh, priesthood uh, where, you, where you become celibate. I mean, that's a huge commitment. That's a calling to the music itself. Mm -hmm. So I asked John Graboff, what were your intentions for getting into music? Well, that's 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 an interesting uh, interesting path that I followed. First of all, my mother was a violinist, and as a matter of fact, we had string quartets in my living room every Wednesday night. Wow! And the cellist and the violist were actually pretty well-known musicians in the. And as a matter of fact, the cellist was in was in a, a world famous string quartet in the fifties called the Kroll String Quartet. However, they were both in the Ed Sullivan Orchestra. And when Paul McCartney did yesterday on the Ed Sullivan Show, those two guys who were in my living room were on stage with him. Uh -huh. So, so there was that. There was that element. My dad. Uh, there was a lot of classical music in my household, but my dad was also an old jazz fan. Hated big band stuff. Liked, you know. Trio, quartet, quintet, sextet stuff. Oh, he was hip, um, man. He was like, he was digging like the, he was digging like the, was it like organ, drums, uh, ba uh, no, guitar? No, no, he, he was of a, of a little early, earlier generation, so he was way into like the, the Benny Goodman quartet, quintet, sextet. Gene Krupa, yep. You know, dig. that, that oh, kind yeah. of stuff. Ah, dig. Um, uh, er, you know, he had a, well, unfortunately he had a, he lost it. He had a huge 78 collection of early uh, um, Armstrong stuff. I mean, he was a real student of that that early jazz stuff and didn't really like the big band stuff because he could, he thought of it as being corporate crap. Um, <laughs> it didn't have so, any grease then, to but it. But also, but also yeah. he had you know Bill, big Bill Brunsey records in the house and, and, and stuff like that. So there was a, a very wide range of music that I was exposed to as a kid. The problem was that my two brothers took up the guitar in particular before I did, and I avoided doing that for a really long time because I just did, I wanted to avoid the competitive brother thing. So I actually started playing music much later than most most people do. Most people I you know who have been playing for a long time started at eight or nine years old. I didn't start playing guitar until I was almost sixteen years old. Um, but by then I was I you know I'd left. I had left home at that point to play mandolin in the bluegrass band, but I'd only been playing guitar for six months a year before that happened. So I really kind of started playing very late. Uh, music was always, a, you, you know, music is always going through my head almost all the time. And it always, ha always did, but for familial, you know, family reasons, I sort of avoided it for a really long time. And then when I got into it, I got into it pretty deep and I advanced pretty quickly. Um, I started playing with these older guys. They were starting to play bluegrass music. And they said, well, we don't really need a guitar player. We need a mandolin player. And I said, well, I'll give that a try. And I loaned me a mandolin, and I did my first gig on mandolin two weeks later. Wow. So I guess I kind of picked it up pretty quick. 
you know, on a very rudimentary level, you know, it was no, but I think because I was exposed to so many different kinds of music in my house, uh, I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't, uh, just solely into another, you know, one, one, one style of music. However, you know, you, you, I am of a certain generations, you know, Beatles and Stones and Beach Boys and stuff like that. Everything else sort of faded, you know, faded to the background and, uh, and kind of become like a lot of, a lot of people, you know, of my generation. That was just okay. This is this is all I want to listen to. This stuff. This is my generation stuff, and this is what I'm going to listen to. However, down the line, of course, you start you start reading interviews with with musicians you admire, and they te- they they talk about the stuff that inspired them. And then, of course, if you're in any way interested and curious, you go back and you find that. And I'll give you a really good example. I remember reading an interview with Eric Clapton and he said his favorite record was B.B. King Live at the Regal. I went, hmm. And back then, that record was really hard to find. This was pre-CD where everything got reissued. I finally found that record. I listened to it. And to be honest, I never bought another Eric Clapton record after that. <laughs> what, now, I, I mean, just oh, I, what was it? What, what did you, what, what was revelatory? Or I mean, I mean, just for the audience out there, I mean, did you did you understand why he got off on that record? Oh, absolutely, it's fantastic. I mean, it's so vibrant. I mean, this is BB King pre the thrill is gone. This is BB King Chitlin circuit. I dig, and and it's it's often the case when you exposed to something kind of secondhand, and then you go back to the source. Then the source becomes okay. <laughs> ah, this is what's this is what it's supposed to be. <laughs> This is their interpretation of <clears throat> that thing. I can totally understand why they're inspired by it because it's fantastic. Right. I mean, you, you listen to the Yardbirds version of Train Kept a Roll, and then you listen to the Johnny, Burt, Rock, Johnny Burnett Rock and Roll Trio version of it, and the Yardbirds version sort of kind of fades away pretty quick because the 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 early you know the the original inspiration stuff it just has that spark. You know, this is like this is a moment in time where time stopped for a moment and everybody kind of said, and go, what the hell is that? And yeah, sure. Sure. I mean, it's always, it's always really interesting to hear about what people were inspired by and then go back and listen to it and try to figure out if it doesn't hit you right away, which often sometimes it doesn't, so you don't get it right away, but try to understand what, what it meant to a musician that you admire. And more often than not, you'll go, okay, what you're really doing is your interpretation of that, and sometimes those reinterpretations, if it's really a reinterpretation, not just a regurgitation, can have its own merit. But if it's just regurgitating somebody else's stuff, the original stuff is more usually more real and more more vibrant and has that, that spark, you know? I just want to uh, circle back. I mean, I, you know, clearly there was, you know, uh, brother competition and i i like you shy away from that stuff i i'm kind of an individualist and i like to carve my own path and um so i dig that but i mean when you first hit the bandstand with the with the mandolin and i mean what were was it about like this is this the music did the music find you uh yes and no and i'll tell you i'll tell you what what happened um there was 
glam rock back in the early 70s and mid-70s really left me cold. Uh, I found that it, it was, to a certain extent, it was style over substance. Absolutely. And, and I remember seeing uh, Bowie's Ziggy Stardust with that get-up. And I didn't. And I have to be. I have to. I have to own up to the fact that I came to understanding that how good the music was way later because I just got turned off by. I'm looking at this guy and go, I can't do that. Right. That's not me. I, there's no place for me in that. And so I started veering. At that moment in my life, I started go, you know, veering towards the root stuff. You know, the in, original inspiration stuff because I didn't feel like I I had a home in that in what was going on at that moment. So I started going into, you know, going back in time, going, you know, starting to source um, earlier stuff that were inspiring these people. But I found I got really hooked at it. So when I, uh, Chicago blues and then the country blues stuff, and I just thought, wow, this stuff is so great. I could really immerse myself in this forever. Um, So, yeah, the music found me to a certain extent. And I certainly, I certain, I had a certain affinity for certain styles over over others, but was also trying to appreciate those other styles. Like for example, I was never going to be a blues musician because I just, all the, all the, basically, to be perfectly tr- honest, all the white guys who were doing blues kind of made me feel like they were trying to be something they're not. Mm-hmm. And then going back and listening to. Uh, the, and once again, going back to the original source material, I said, okay, this is the real stuff. This is this is the wellspring of this style of music, and there are so many different there are so many different styles within a genre. And this is because there wasn't mass communication back then. So everybody coming up back in the twenties, forties, fifties, there was a regional aspect to it, or even a, a, a specific town. Uh, sound, you know, New Orleans had it had its sound. The Mississippi Delta had its sound. Chicago had its sound. Philadelphia had it. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, about I mean, I, my, most of my show has been dedicated to regionalism. I I, I totally get it. It's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and then with that, then that, then it becomes like endlessly fascinating. It's almost like if you're like a wine connoisseur. <laughs> yeah, know? absolutely. Yeah. I, I dig. Man. I can really enjoy this bottle of wine from the <laughs> south side of the hill, but the west side of the hill is really different, and it's got a complete different character. And you're, you know, you're within an acre and a half of each other. And it's the same thing with music. Uh, especially back then, you could go eight miles down the road, and that guy sounds totally different than the guy over here. And so, yeah, you can really go down that rabbit hole pretty quick and get completely immersed and immerse yourself in that, you know, that thing, you know. I just wonder, Uh, like, I mean, I don't have the audio queued up, but a dear friend of yours and a big supporter of me, uh, Neil Casal, he told me in in our second mm -hmm. interview uh, about literally stealing uh, ramen noodles out of a gas station at Ann Arbor, Michigan, living in a freezing barn while all of his peers went to college at Ann Arbor. He was in a rock band, and he it never dawned on him until 15 years later that's how badly he wanted to do music. I mean, here's a guy living in a barn, stealing food out of a, out of a total station, and all his peers are, are conforming <laughs> to what supposedly society says you should do. 
Is there a gray ball for that? Is is that an? What I'm saying is that's the calling for me. To me, that's the calling, and that's the. Well, you know, when I was when I was playing in this blue when I started playing mandolin in this bluegrass band when I was 15, and then when I was 16, I ended up with this band in San Francisco, and we were not a great band. We didn't play very much. I was 16 years old, so I couldn't really do anything, um, but. We would, we was a four piece band, and every day we would go down to this little deli and we would buy four pieces of bologna <laughs> and, a lo- yes. and a loaf of bread. Yes, and that would be that would be our meal. That was that was our daily dare, 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 daily dinner, you know. Yeah, sure, you know. So I, I totally, I totally get that. I didn't think of it at the time that wow, I want to do this so badly. I'm, I'm willing to eat a single slice of bologna on two pieces of bread and that would be my only meal of the day. Never thought of it. You know, never, it never occurred to me that I was doing something that was like abnormal or, um, and the amazing thing about it in retrospect is that my folks let me do it. And, well, absolutely. It was, uh, what year was that? I mean, my, my dad, my dad was an artist and my mother was a, te- a school teacher and a musician. So they totally encouraged me to, do this kind of thing and i and i look back on it and go wow that was pretty that was pretty bold uh yeah this was in 72 when i was when i was playing in this band that is so badass i I, just for the record i was birthed in 78 but i mean this is unbelievable you were in san francisco in 1972 that that is that is i mean were you um well, you know, we, I, I've just, I, you know, we have a game on this program called Name That Voice. Um, I don't necessarily expect you to get the name of the voice, but I, pay attention to the content, and then we'll come back and break it down. <laughs> I did. I made a batch of brownies when I was out in California, and uh, they were powerful brownies. <laughs> but but Earl, Earl, Earl actually ingested one. I mean, he, he took it down. Yeah, well... I, on my way back from California, I stopped at their house, Earl and Louise, and, and we were. I was talking about how we played in a uh, uh, couple of those clubs uh, in San Francisco where you could just smell uh, the pot in the air. Sure. And and Earl had played in those clubs too. Was it the Avalon Ballroom, uh, one of the big ones? The Fillmore, yeah, all those clubs. Yeah, sure. And uh, uh, and he said, but he didn't smoke anymore, so he couldn't he couldn't check it out. And I said, well, you don't really have to smoke it; you can eat it. And uh, in fact, I've got some brownies out in the car, and if you wanted to try it out, uh, so I brought in three brownies, and I decided I'd eat one just to, to show him that it was cool. I mean, that it, you know, yeah, right, 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 wasn't gonna keel over and. Uh, then he ate one, and Louise decided to keep hers till later. And uh, at one point he turned to Louise and said, Louise, the color is fading in and out of a, a TV. <laughs> and she said, but Earl, this commercial is in black and white. <laughs> <laughs> you have any idea who that is? Boy, it sounds. It sounds like I should. Well, no, because I had, and I, and I could be way off here. I mean, I, I just had, a, I had this gut feel. I, everything I do is on intuition. And I'm like, mm-hmm. and I know you. I mean, I know you play. You're multi instrumentalist, but you do play pedal steel, right? 
So I, I thought maybe you would have come across this man, rest in peace. Th- that voice was Bill Keith. Oh. And that was from my interview with him from um, November 2014. And it's this legendary story of him driving across the country, driving in Texas, and, and giving Earl Scruggs pot brownies and there and there's earl saying oh, oh he's like he's like yo the, the tv's changing colors and, and his wife's like no it's in black and white <laughs> you know and, and it's like that my my you know did you have were you somebody you strike me the mandolin is a good example where you're kind of a street scholar i mean you listen to some records you go back to the source material original source and then you kind of work it out pedal steel wise did you have somebody that that worked with you on it did you ever cross paths with bill keith and how did you how have ultimately has Grayball found his how do you express your truth through your instrument well i'll tell you i'll tell you i have a very very specific story about coming to uh, uh coming to the pedal steel when i was Jeez, I don't know. However, however, however old I was at the time, um, a friend of mine called me up and said, "Hey, you know, I just bought this Birds record, and it's really weird. You should come over and listen to it." And I said, "Oh, okay." I hopped on my bicycle and went to Tommy's house, and he hands me this record. Re- record it says, "Sweetheart of the Rodeo," and he drops a needle on the on the record. First song is "You Ain't Going Nowhere," the Bob Dylan tune by the Birds with a pedal steel intro by Lloyd Green. Right. And I'm looking, and I, I just remember my ears picking up like, like a dog hears, hears some, some sound that you don't hear. Uh, and so I'm, what is that? And I'm looking at the liner notes. I said, okay, I know what a guitar is. I know what a mandolin is. I know what a fiddle is. I know what drums and bass are. So by process of elimination, this, that must be what they call pedal steel. But I'm a New York City kid. I never heard that. I never, I wasn't aware of ever hearing that instrument before. It was a com- completely unknown thing to me. But I remember thinking to myself, wow, what is that? And then looking at the liner notes and by process of elimination, figuring out what it was called. Didn't really understand what it really was. It just not, I had a name to put to it at that point. Well, about three months later, my family was going somewhere in the car, and we stopped at some diner for lunch. And at every table was one of those little old jukebox things with the flip cards. And somebody in the diner had dialed up the Dolly Parton uh, Porter Wagner version of the Kitty Wells tune, If Teardrops Were Pennies and Heartaches Were Gold. And there was a pedal steel intro. And I remember thinking to myself, hey, there's that same thing again. So it really made an impression on me. And the ironic thing about it, was that both of those intros were played by the same guy, Lloyd Green. I love Ooh. Lloyd Green so much, man. Dude, that dude's a bad... There's so many great records by him, too. Did, did, the, the, the idea... I mean, it's interesting to me. You grew up immersed in string music in your house. Mm-hmm. You went um, out with a bluegrass band, and obviously we're talking about pedal steel here uh, in the context. I think of pedal steel with... Uh, you know, I mean, Questkin Jug Band or things like that, and where you mm-hmm. know there was a washtub bass and maybe some percussion. But when was when did how responsible do you feel like um, that those early 
um, experiences with the Mando and those things, how did those help develop your own internal time feel? Because, like, I mean, John Abercrombie was like, I would never have gotten, he got his first gig with Johnny Hammond Smith, who was this uh, B3 player in the city. And, the, and you know, uh -huh. he got it because he had good time. He goes, if you don't have good time, you're not going to get a gig. But you didn't really right. play, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, I'm, I, you didn't play with a trap set for, for a minute, you know, for a long time. I'm just curious about how you're, you feel you developed your own internal time feel. Well, you know, I've, I've, you know, time, the time, time for me, playing in time for me was never something that came very easily for me. I had, a, I, had a, I had a terrible speeding up problem. I still do. Uh, and I, um, there's one guy that I know who has just amazingly great time. And I asked him about it and he just, and he had the opposite thing. He said, I wish the rest of playing music came as naturally to me as good time. So everybody, either feels it in you know internally has their own little clock, internal metronome that never fails them and other people have to think about it a little more i was one of those guys who had to think about it a lot um but i also i also realize that there's in certain styles of music there's a different uh there's a different pulse and i'll give you i'll tell you a funny story about that I mentioned earlier that i played every monday night in this in this band in this little tiny club in new york playing everything from Haggard to Paul Revere and the Raiders. I mean, you know, I mean, we just did all sorts. It was of all stuff. over the place, yeah. And we, yeah, we, you know, just whatever song we liked, we would play. And um, we, the guy who played drums on us for a really long time, he decided he and his wife decided to relocate and they moved away. And there was another guy who was a good friend of ours, who was a great drummer, started playing with us. But something was wrong, and I was. He was playing the part right, but the feel wasn't right. And I realized, oh, this guy had been touring with this blues guy for for the last couple of years. He just came off the road from the playing with this blues guy, and I realized that there's a there's where the pulse is is really different between basically white music and black music, uh, country music, which is very Scottish influenced, of course, only by about ten percent, and the rest is all black music. Let's face it. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> But the pulse is the pulse is really on one and three, and in in stuff that's more African American, it's over, it's it's really what they call the backbeats two and four. That's right. You're right. So what happens? So what happens is if you're if you're playing country music, but with that with that very very subtle pulse on two and four, you can be playing the part right, but it doesn't feel right. It feels 180 degrees out of sync because it is, <laughs> and. It's a really, really subtle thing. It's, it's, but you, you know it when you hear it. Um, I and some some drummers just have that sense where they know exactly where the pulse is. So for you know, like country music, which is got you know, if you think about like bad pipe music, one two two, there's one, there's every, the accents forward leaning on the on the on the, on the downbeat, where R and B stuff is. 180 degrees backwards from it. It's 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 kind of on the back side of two and four as opposed to the front side of one and three. Mm -hmm, that's right. I don't know if any of this makes any sense. No, I mean, dude, I mean, you you you. Uh, I mean, this my show. This is my show has become about rhythm. To me, rhythm is love. This is so. I mean, you can go as deep in the weeds as you want, but I mean, did you? Um, when was the first time you played with a trap drummer? 
Well, I played I played in rock and roll junior high school band, so you know we had full the full the full deal. Um, I'm talking was, like after however, after the after the mandolin experience, like when you actually be kind of you know you were, you were you know you know singing for your supper. Oh yeah, well you know I, after I moved, I came back from California, uh, and I moved up to Western Massachusetts where I lived for eleven, sixteen. But it was very local. It was all bar band stuff, and I played in bar bands. You know what what happened was that I. When I, I decided that bluegrass music for me was a dead end, because of what I really liked was I really liked the you know the, the the traditional stuff. I loved you know the Stanley Brothers and Bill Monroe and the you know the earlier Flat and Scruggs stuff and Jim and Jesse and stuff. And I didn't and I felt like in order to play the kind of bluegrass music that I loved, then it, it became a museum piece. And I wasn't really interested in, beca- in being a museum piece. Right. So I sold my I sold my mandolin. I bought an electric guitar. I bought a Telecaster, and I just started playing in bands. And I didn't I didn't come back to the mandolin. I didn't own another mandolin for another ten years. Um, interestingly enough, it's like I just I felt like I just needed to get away from that and think about something else. And so I just played in bar bands for years up there, and it was all you know it was all drums and stuff like that. Um, but you know the the funny thing about drummers is there's there's not that many really great ones. And when you when you start playing with a really great drummer, you know the difference really fast. Cause it's all about that time thing that you were talking about before. Um, can you talk about? I mean, can, you, t- play, can you talk? It's not only playing in time, but it's also playing with playing with a pulse that is emotionally satisfying. And you know, it's the difference between playing with with, feel, with soul and feel, and, and, as opposed to uh, playing like a machine. Well, I mean, I, I, and, and then when you went, yeah. and then when you find a drummer who can play with great time and great feel, then you kind of go, "Wow, it's like sitting in the backseat of a you know uh, a '59 Caddy. You're just going along for the ride at that point. <laughs> it's really smooth and really feels really good." Does Tony Does Tony Leone fall into that category? Oh, absolutely. When Tony's did you? When, can you talk? Can you talk? Like what experience? What What situations have you? I played with Tony because he. I mean, to me, some one of my friends saw him with a band uh, uh, the other day at, called Northern Aggression uh, at in Brooklyn, and they were playing like Crusader tunes. He took some audio of it, and Tony was just burning. And and well, so Tony Tony came up as a, as a trained jazz guy. Absolutely. Uh, and the funny thing is that I know a lot of people in New York City, in particular, came up as jazz guys, and then decided that. And also, for uh, in, in a lot of ways, it's the same reason why I gave up bluegrass music. They felt that there was a, a regimentation to it and a formulaic approach to playing jazz that they felt was uh, handcuffing and unsatisfying, and you didn't make any money doing it. So that's, you know, on a financial and, more importantly, an artistic level, they abandoned jazz and started getting into more root stuff. So he has a great education but he doesn't play like it because he's got great ears and he's a very musical guy. He listens to the tune and he plays the tune uh, as opposed to, you know, using the tune as an excuse to be clever and flashy and awesome. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, well, he, he didn't, he's not handcuffed by the purity of, of jazz. I mean, he's going to play, he's going to serve the song. Exactly, but but he had to, you know. He just, so as I said, he came up in the jazz thing, kind of felt that it was it was handcuffing and limiting, and he got into playing other kinds of stuff, 
And but he was also a huge Grateful Dead fan, which kind of surprised me when I first found that out about him. But he was, you know, he was way into it back in the day. And when I started doing some gigs with Phil Lesh, uh, the, at the time he was using a drummer who just didn't seem to understand the the, the genre very well. And I remember saying to one of the, I didn't remember, I didn't say it to Phil, I said it to somebody else who, around him. He goes, and I just casually wrote, said one day, he goes, man, I know the perfect drummer for the for for this. And the next day, Phil comes up to me and says, uh, John, uh, tell me something about Tony Leone. <laughs> <laughs> so somebody had passed that along to him. Right, right. And right. And, uh, and I just said, you know, he's. He's, I basically said he's everything you're looking for. He understands jazz. He's really comfortable playing in lots of weird time time signatures, but he also knows knows the dead the Grateful Dead catalog like the back of his hand. And you know, and, and Tony's been doing gigs on and off with Phil ever since. Uh, you're absolutely. Yeah, no. I mean, he, Phil. I mean, Phil. Phil does not. He he's he's very uh, anti backbeat. He wants you to dance around. Um, and you know, uh, sort of play dance to his bass lines, and and I it, yeah, Tony um, is it really is the perfect fit for that. I mean, how did you? It's interesting. Um, were you, were you up in Amherst? Is that where Western Mass? I should I, I feel ashamed because I, I went. I was to, even I was I was even further west than Amherst. Wow. Um, Amherst is is you know around Springfield Amherst area, sort of central western part of Massachusetts is a whole whole section even further west uh, than than that area so I mean it seems like you how did you wind up um, connecting with with Phil well well you know I was playing I was playing in this other band for a number of years that that Phil was a fan of and he would show up at gigs every once in a while so we we had, you know got to know each other a little bit during that period of time and then totally out of the blue one day, I get this voice message. I see a phone number I don't recognize. I, hear, I hit the message thing on my phone and it says, hey, John, this is uh, Phil Lesh from The Grateful Dead. And I <laughs> to qualificate, you know, the qualifying right, statement. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know. And he says, I, you know, I just opened this place up in, uh, in Marin County and we're starting to do music and I'd really like to talk to you about coming out and playing some music. <laughs> <laughs> I went, wow. And I <laughs> that is such a classic. And, uh, yeah, and, yeah. you know, he, they, he just opened Terrapin, Terrapin uh, up in uh, um, yeah, San, San Rafael. Rafael. Yeah. And um, he says, you know, well, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of feeling our way through this at the moment, but basically the idea is we have the big, you know, the great room, which is the larger, you know, more staged so to so so to speak uh performance but we also do like little breakdown things in the bar area and you know on the patio on the weekends for brunch and stuff like that and so we're we're i'm not really quite sure what we're going to do but i'd like you to come out come out and be part of it and the amazing thing this is this is so i had played with phil a couple times when he sat in with his other band i played was it ryan adams and yeah, yeah, okay. and um, but he asked me to come out for three weeks. I mean, which cons which I thought was an incredible leap of faith. You know, we'd never really worked together to any any extent, right? 
And he's not only is he inviting me to come out for three weeks, but they're putting me up and they're paying me well. And I just thought, wow, that's a that's a real leap of faith. And I'm, you know, and I, I really appreciate that that aspect of it. The problem was I was on tour at the moment, actually with Tony Leone and a couple other friends of ours, backing up Shooter Jennings. We were on the road, and I went to Shooter and I said, "Hey, man, um, <laughs> you know, I got this." Uh, I got this offer to do this thing and I really feel like I can't pass it up. And, uh, if you're interested, I've already lined up a replacement for me, a really good player that I know. Um, so I'm not, you know, wouldn't be leaving you totally in the lurch, but I gotta go. And he was so totally cool about it. And, you know, shooter and I, I just saw him the other night and he's still pals and stuff and didn't burn any, didn't burn any bridges. Cause I did it the right way. I just didn't, I didn't, you know, I really did line somebody up and, you know, um, so if you wanted to bring this person in, this guy was ready to go. Uh, so you appreciated that. So I ended up like leaving this tour in, in mid in midstream and flying out of Roswell, New Mexico, right to San Francisco, and it totally found myself immersed in that world, which was pretty, which required total immersion. Because I'll tell you something: at that time, Sill was doing Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday in the great room which basically meant that he never repeated a song. Wow. And then, whoa, you know, whoa. I would, uh, you know, I, with a couple of other people involved, I would either do like the, you know, for like an hour set on the, some, you know, the weekend brunches out, out on the patio or, you know, an evening kind of improvisational thing in the, in the, in the bar area. So basically every week I was playing, I was having to kind of internalize and play like 160 songs. <laughs> did you, I, mean, I want to be I want to be clear about something. I mean, first of all, did, was the bar even built at that time? There was no bar. There was no stage in the in the in the there bar. There was no stage. It was just on the floor, which I which I thought was kind of great. Going know? back to the leap uh, of faith, kind of... the leap of faith, like, um, like you know, someone like Tony, uh, already was immersed in the Dead catalog. You mm-hmm. you were not right. You were not a Dead fan, so. Or, 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 uh, well, I was not. I mean, I you know, I knew some of the records, and I knew, but I never played any of this stuff because I was, you know, um, and I never, you know, I never became uh, encyclopedic about a lot of people are about. They're always exactly the same. I'd wake up in the morning, check my email. There'd be a set list for that evening, two sets from Phil, and I would sit there in my pajamas and start <laughs> writing out cheat sheets, for, you know, just going through, and I would call Tony who was still on the road with the shooter, and I said, Tony, what version of this song should I listen to? And he'd say, go back to, you know, uh, you know, 83 at, you know, Meadowlands or something like that, you know? Um, I love it. So Tony was my total go-to guy for, okay, what should I, you know, what version? And even still, I get kind of fouled up. We were playing one song one night, and I, and I started playing, and Phil kind of waves everybody because, you know, we're in we're in we're in G, not in E. And I said, I thought it was in G. He goes, Oh, we haven't played it in G since 1977. <laughs> that so was the that was the show you were, yeah, right. <laughs> so even if I even if you know you think you know the stuff, things changed over time. Keys would change, arrangements would change to a certain extent. Um, so it, but it was a, so my days were always exactly the same. I would wake up, email with a set list. Start writing charts in my pajamas. Look at my cl- my watch. Going okay. I got to jump in the shower and head over to the club for the rehearsal because we basically run the set, have a dinner break, and do the show. 
and then the next day it would start all over again. Um, Why? Now, the, now I want to be. I want to be. That, yeah, go ahead, please that, continue. I was going to say the thing that was kind of cool about it was that I, it occurred to me that I hadn't been all about playing music twenty four seven since I was like seventeen years old. Because you know, as, as you when you become an adult, real life starts inter, in, intervening. You know, you got to take the garbage out, you got to feed the cat, you got to do this, you got to do that. Well, all I was doing every day was was playing music and i just thought wow i haven't really had a chance to do this since i was 17 and it's actually pretty great you know it was, it was like it was almost like going to summer camp you know it was like okay this is what i'm doing now and real <laughs> life takes a back seat for for a couple of weeks and hey this is kind of cool <laughs> it's one of the coolest stories i've ever heard I, I i you know mcdougall adam mcdougall told me in our interview that he worked out the songs, just like you said. He got the set list. He's working it out, and he comes in and feels like, no, 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 no. We're not playing them like that. We're playing them totally differently. Right. Did he switch it up on you right away? I mean, I guess that's what I'm saying. Is like You talk about being in that reactive state. Is that the magic, mm -hmm. aside from Phil's just placement of his notes, is the magic of Phil just the idea that you're always, because of the unpredictability, it's always a reactive mode of music? Yeah, I mean, I think that was... That was and, and that's why I said before when I talked about the Grateful Dead sucking a lot and recording and stuff and encouraging fans to record them sucking, that's why I said it was sort of like, like it was just punk as hell. <laughs> and, Dude, and I, I love like, the way you're breaking this down. I mean, I would have been, I'm to, I would have been totally one of those guys taping those, the, the swag stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's funny the way you, to hear you say that. Well, you, you think about it, you think about that, that, that state of mind and what it's saying about, um, predictability and uh, polished performances and stuff like that. And I can't think of, I can't think of any, any, any other band who had that punk and attitude about what they were doing and the Grateful Dead, maybe the MC five, you know, who most people consider kind of proto punk. Mm -hmm. right? I actually saw that in set in, in 1969. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, that's the thing. That's the whole thing. It's like, and that's that's what music performance should be. It should be everybody's paying attention. Everybody's listening to what each other's doing. If somebody w wants to take this turn, if it seems cool, go go there. If it doesn't, it'll kind of peter out on its own. Uh, and and Phil totally embodies that entire attitude, which is something that I really appreciated and I thought was great. And I thought he really loved. Uh, what I was doing because he would play something and I would respond to it and I remember he, he, hearing him do something and then kind of responding to it and I'd look back and he'd have a big shit-eating grin on his face because uh, apparently there were a lot of people around who were doing that. I think he's over time found a cadre of musicians who uh, spin his gears but at the early stages when he's just trying to put this thing together and trying all sorts of different people um well, interestingly enough, I remember him saying, you know, he, you know, Neil Casale done a, done a weekend up there, and he expressed some reservation about Neil uh, feeling he, that he was being a little tight, you know, and unresponsive. And I just said, listen, Phil, said, here's something you have to continue. I don't want to let you down. And I, sometimes I think that gets in, in, the fa in the way of being free and, and kind of going with the flow a little bit. Give him a little time, you know, to – to acclimate to this environment for no other better way of putting it. And I think you'll find him 
a really rewarding person to have around. And he's been doing gigs until since you know on and off since then too. So, um, I just want to be clear. You 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 dropped there for a second. He's he, Phil said that he was too, he was tight, and you're like it's Neil's first time. I mean, he it takes him a minute to unwind a little bit. Is that what you said? Well, I, well, what I was saying was that Neil and a, and a bunch of other people I can think of were coming in, but they were, had so much admiration and respect uh, for Phil and the dead stuff that that almost kind of got in the way of them being free because they didn't want to, they wouldn't want to disappoint him. And when you started thinking about that, then you start thinking about mistakes and, you know, leading, you know, kind of going down the wrong path or something like that. And that's exactly the antithesis, antithesis to what playing with Phil should be about. If that makes sense. No, it's uh, dude, it's a hundred percent, you know, um, John, I, I, we've been cooking for over an hour here. I, I, I feel like I barely got to anything I really wanted to, to talk to you about. I mean, is, is it? Can we pick up on part two uh, pretty soon down the road? Sure. Yeah. So let me know when. And, uh, um, and I mean, sure. I mean this is great. To, you're just like. I mean, it's it's like anything else. I mean, this, my show is dedicated to the unsung. It's like I, I, I really you were so humble in your responses. Like, why do you want to interview me? Well, that, that we just went, we just cooked for an hour and now, now, you know, you know, now we know why, you know? Oh, well, that's, how, that's very flattering. But as you can tell, I tend to think about things a lot. <laughs> and, uh, well, and also, I mean, I, this is one quote. I mean, this one thing that I'll let you marinate on it. Uh, <laughs> just one question for you. Cause I, feet fans have been flooding my inbox. Uh, like with questions is that what is your you know is there a seminal is there a seminal moment uh of music that you played with with neil casal that you can talk about wow there's, there's so many of them um yeah um when he was doing uh you know i played in the band with him for a long time and but his relationship in that band was complicated because he's a wonderful guitar player, but he's also an artist in his own right. And he had to really kind of balance all that out to, to make his role in that band work. And that was a, that was a real tricky, real tricky, um, uh, road for him. Um, but when he, when he started working on, uh, I think it was the roots and wings record. He asked me to play on a couple of tunes, and uh, and then I just remember sitting in the studio and coming up with this really one part, and I I kind of hit this one moment, and he raises his hands with two fists up as you know, kind of like a, a like a Rocky at the top of the stairs <laughs> moment, and then it's it's kind of kind of at that moment I felt like, okay, we've we've now it's just now it's just him and me and nobody else, no other big star, no, nobody have, you have to kind of be back up to. It's just him and me. And we've completely understood each other on a musical and emotional level at that one moment. And that was a really satisfying thing. Well, yeah, this is the one line from, I know you're in Santa Fe right now, so you're not in the bastion uh -huh. of, of New York with all the cats, all your boys, but it's the Cropper, Steve Cropper said, a lot of young musicians got the wrong message of life, period. 
music may be their precious moment, but there's more to life than just music. We, you can dwell well, on. Me, I mean, just dwell yeah, on. Listen, let, let's. Let, I, we 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 have, I I have we have such a ball, Grayball. Let, let's just. I'll I'll shoot you a message, and let's do part two as soon as possible. It's just such a great hang, dude. Well, thanks. I appreciate that, and I'll let you marinate on this for a while. What I've been doing a lot lately is building furniture. I knew it. I knew that. I see people get obsessed <laughs> with that. All right, so we'll, we'll dive into that as well. But such an have a great weekend, man. And thank you for going there with me. I appreciate it. Sure, sure. I, I enjoyed it, and I look forward to part two. Oh, I, I dig, man. Have a beautiful day, brother. Peace. Wow. Mind-blowing excursions with John Graboff on the Jake Feinberg Show. We'll be right back on the other side.